Jesus would be supreme. Now, for Johnny last week in preaching that, that was the climactic moment. Got you there. That was the climactic moment. But for Paul, do you know what? It's not. You would think that for Paul, he'd reach that theological mountaintop and then take a deep breath, a little bit of a breather, regroup, and kind of move on to the next thing then. But he doesn't. Paul doesn't even take a breath before going on into verse 19. He's not done yet talking about the supremacy of Jesus. He's not done yet because he's passionate to show us the glory of Christ in the gospel, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you were here last week, or if this is brand new for you, realize that Paul is continuing without there being a seven-day gap between this. He's continuing, in fact, without even pausing to get a little drink of water, regroup his thoughts and move on. No, when he said so that in everything Jesus might have the supremacy, he's still building towards something. And here it is. Let's read verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God was pleased to reconcile all things. Jesus could have the supremacy in everything through judgment instead of through redemption. But the mercy, the glory of God revealed in the gospel is this, that Jesus has come to supremacy in all things through redemption, through reconciling all things, through his own blood shed on the cross. Take a look at this, verse 19. He says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. How do you fit all the fullness of God into a human being? How do you do that? Only God can do that. I can't even get my clothes back in my suitcase after I've been on a trip. And he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. I want to somehow try to help you capture this because in these preceding verses, Paul has been talking in grand, broad, sweeping terms about the redemptive purpose of God. And he says, all of creation, everything that was made, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth, thrones, powers, principalities, doesn't matter what it was. It's all made by Jesus. Take that whole infinite, incredible universe and then not only in space, but run it back in time to before the beginning when God alone existed in the perfection of his own person and spoke it all into being, however long ago, that somehow that's all out here. It's running, if you will, out these windows and across the street, and it keeps on going because this building is too big to contain that. And then, I need a volunteer. Adam, help me out. And then, God comes in a human being, in the man Christ Jesus, And God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So all of this vast creation, 
purpose, redemptive heart of God that's existed from before the beginning is channeling itself. It's being funneled, if you will, focused into this moment in space and time where God came down. And through him, with all the fullness of God, somehow incarnated in Jesus Christ, God came and died on the cross. Can you give us a cross? And all of that redemptive purpose of God funnels through the cross. Jesus' birth, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. And then explodes out this other side. That all things in heaven and on earth would be reconciled through the supremacy of the redeeming blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this direction, it's blowing this wall out. It's annihilating the side of the building. And it just keeps on going because it is an unstoppable flood of the redemptive mercy and power of God, focusing in through and exploding out on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can't stop in verse 18. That's why Paul has to go on and say, for God was pleased have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Thanks. Have a seat. We have both in Christ, in him, all of God's fullness and through him, reconciliation for earth through heaven. How do you do that? How do you do that? Through his blood, through his blood shed on the cross. What does blood have to do with it? It sounds all glorious until you start bleeding. What's blood have to do with it? Well, Paul is drawing on a rich history and imagery of blood sacrifice. Of blood sacrifice because sin is that serious. God set out for his people to make it very visibly clear to them that the result of sin is actually death. He set out a system of blood sacrifice, animal sacrifice, to show that our sin requires this penalty of death. You know, when you know that you're living in sin, when you know that you're somehow just not right in your life, it's easy to be aware of feeling separated from God. And yet, we often don't recognize that it means God's judgment is upon us because of that sin. And that's why Jesus came and took our place in a sacrificial way. In a sacrificial way, he came because sin is rebellion against an infinitely glorious king. And the result for that is capital punishment. But to reconcile sinners back to himself, God paid the price himself. Jesus took it all on himself in that one moment in space and time where all of God's love and God's anger at sin combined together to pay the cost for all creation. And Paul says God was pleased. For God was pleased. Not only to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, but God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things by the shedding of his blood on the cross. That's why we love to sing about the blood. That's why we love to sing about our Savior and Redeemer forever. Because he came and took our place to reconcile you and me to God. Please, friends, never lose the wonder of the incarnation. Never lose your amazement 
you know, if you grow up with this as a kid, you know, some of us, our kids are downstairs. Some of you have kids downstairs. You can start out and learn that God came in Jesus and Jesus was both God and man and take it for granted almost. Or if you've come to Christ later in life and you're so aware of God's forgiveness and you, you can so easily feel the effects of the work of God in your life, but never lose the wonder of the incarnation that God would be pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, to come as a human just like us. The glorious king to whom the whole universe, it's just a drop in the bucket of his glory, would somehow pour himself into a human container and 100% God and 100% man give himself for us. Humbling himself, leaving heaven, taking on the very form of a servant, ultimately submitting himself even to death on a cross so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Please keep it so real in your thinking. Don't step away from this reality that God's come. God has come for us. That's what Paul does actually in verse 21. He takes this grand redemptive work of God how God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. And he says this, once you, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds as shown by your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Friends, it's got to become personal. Paul makes this redemptive work personal to the people he's writing to. He almost repeats the same thing, except the difference here now is it's you and it's me. He recounts God doing the same working, taking a broken and separated creation and coming in person and redeeming all things through his bloodshed on the cross. But he's making it personal for us. He says, once you, We're alienated from God. Friends, the gospel is not just a message about God. It's a personal experience for us. It says, once you were alienated from God in ourselves, we're so hopeless and helpless before God in our sin. Once you were alienated, but now he has reconciled you not just stars and planets and people in other centuries and parts of the world, but now he has reconciled you. The gospel isn't just truth for us to take in from the neck up. This defines our life experience. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Through his death, we've been made alive. Did you notice who's the one doing the working? Do you notice who's the primary actor here? God's doing it. God is not only doing it in the vast reaches of heaven and other parts of earth and these grandiose abstract theological statements. But when it comes down to you and me, God is still the one doing the work. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. It says here, but now he has reconciled you. He's the one who's done the reconciling. Through Christ's physical body, through death. I noticed that Paul doesn't emphasize Jesus' teaching at this point. He could, 
There's so many things Jesus taught us, not only about who God is, but what we're supposed to do. But he says this, he's reconciled you. Not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. He's done it through Christ's physical body, through death. You know, we can't add to that. (laughs) We can't somehow make the sacrifice of Jesus Christ more effective by trying to add to it through us doing something extra to like give Jesus bonus points for saving us somehow here. The reconciling, this restoring of a right relationship. He says, now he has reconciled you. When it becomes personal in our lives, it's still because he's doing that work in us. And he's done it, it says in verse 22, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Once you, but now he's reconciled you to present you. The gospel becomes personal to us. He's also doing the cleansing and presenting. Thank God for that. The reconciling is is his work and the presenting is his work. He says he's doing it so that we would be without blemish. It's It's a beautiful word he uses because he's still continuing the sacrificial imagery. Paul uses here the same word where he talks about without blemish that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to talk about how Jesus was a perfectly acceptable sacrifice, that there was nothing wrong in him. You couldn't find a single fault in Jesus. He was an acceptable sacrifice to God. And so here in verse 22, Paul is saying, God in Christ makes you just as acceptable to God without a fault, with no accusation being able to stand. It's a work of the cross, not just a work of the Christian. Through the cross, God is already satisfied with you. So when we think about the gospel, when you declare the truth of the gospel, let's make it personal. We've got to keep it personal. Uh, Let's look at the next slide here. I'd like to invite you to, to read this out with me out loud, to take these verses where Paul is saying, but once you, but now God's reconciled you to present you. Let's affirm this as a personal confession, as a personal affirmation of what God has done when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Shall we read that together? Once I was alienated from God, his enemy in thought and action, but now he has reconciled me by Christ's physical body through death to present me wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Is your name in there? Have you surrendered to this Jesus? Have you said, not just, yes, Jesus, I know all that stuff about you, but Jesus, I'm going to put all my hope in you. Have you said, Jesus, you're my savior. I belong to you. If so, then sing this every morning. Shout this during your day. Get on your knees and tell it again before you go to bed. I once, once I was alienated from God. Deserving judgment because I'm God's enemy. But God has reconciled me. Oh, amazing grace. It's amazing grace that he would die for me. Proud, arrogant, self-serving know-it-all. Make me his own and present me faultless without accusation before his throne.
That's our joy. That's our hope. That's our gospel. Paul goes on in verse 23 to make two particular applications of this truth into our lives. To say, because of this, this is how we live. In verse 23, he says, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Friends, hold on to the hope of the gospel. Hold fast to the gospel. The gospel is the foundation of firm faith. Paul says, don't be moved off the gospel by anything. Don't let anything knock you off the gospel. You know, these kind of games that you do, you have a couple people up on this log, the slippery log, you know, they're trying to whack each other with sticks and whoever knocks the other one off wins. Friends, fight with all you've got to stay on top of the gospel, to stand on this thing. We were singing the song Stand a little earlier. Where do we stand? How do we stand before the Lord? Arms high, heart abandoned, focused and founded on this truth. Jesus gave himself for us to present us holy and blameless in God's sight. Don't let yourself be moved off the gospel. Uh, depending on the translation that you have, is everybody using an English one? Yeah? Anyone using a translation that's not English? See, for most of us, whenever we read the Bible, we're reading it in a translation. And there's often more than one way to try to get the exact sense there. I was reading for the New International Version, which says in verse 23, if you continue in your faith... John, what do you have there? You've got an ESV in front of you. Anybody have that memorized in the ESV? Okay. A number of other English translations refer to standing firm in the faith. And it's a tricky thing to try to get the whole sense of in just a couple English words. Because it is both my faith and the faith. It's both. It's not just my faith continuing in your faith as if it's come from you, is up to you, and belongs to you. It's the faith. It is the objective declaration and proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's everything that Paul has been talking about from verses 15 through 22. And when we say, it's my faith, we're not inventing our own personal spirituality. We are affirming that we stand together on the faith that has come. Friends, Paul's expectation here is not that it's in question whether the believers in Colossae will somehow manage to keep a grip on their personal faith. He's expressing an expectation that as they continue to move on in the faith, that these things will be true in their lives as well. He says established and firm. It's the sense of being set on a firm foundation. It's a house that's built on the rock. And he says, don't be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So don't let yourself be distracted or diverted 
Don't trade your hope in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrificial work on our behalf for any other emphasis. Don't wander off into teachings that contradict or erode the importance of the gospel that you've heard and believed. Well, we say, yeah, that's, that's all right. I mean, we know Johnny is completely committed to that gospel. That's what we hear. Those are the songs that are picked here. You know what? There's, there's more to it than just trying to keep our doctrine straight. We're also saying, don't let your own fears and insecurities knock you out of your hope in the gospel. I was so blessed by what Michelle brought earlier this morning. Say, when you wonder, how can I approach God when I'm not perfect? We come back to this firm hope. It's Jesus's perfection, not my perfection, that buys me acceptance with God. Whenever you worry that you're not doing enough for God, stand firmly on this foundation, the foundation of the gospel. God has done enough himself in Christ. Whenever you worry about what other people think of you, how you're insecure about what people are going to think about me, especially if I start talking about Jesus at work, stand firm on this hope of the gospel. When you start to worry and wonder whether you'll have a special place here at Mercy Hill as a bunch of new people come in or whether you're just going to disappear, you're still precious to God. Stand firm on the hope of the gospel. When you worry about what people will think about you if you actually let your weaknesses show and you open up and you confess that you're needy and desperate yourself, stand firm on the hope of the gospel. You've been made holy in God's sight through his blood shed on the cross. If you ever wonder whether God accepts you, do you really dare run to him and pray and boldly ask him for things? Don't be moved. Don't be moved for the hope of the gospel. A lot of folks, certainly at a cross point, we've got a lot of folks at cross point who are facing real economic, job-related, bill-related crises. A lot of unemployment, particularly in the building trades. Some of you have finished college and found yourself not able to get a job in the area you were trained in. You're trying to start a family. You're wondering, how are you going to make ends meet? Or maybe you already started all of that and you've got uh, plenty of debt obligations that you're facing and you're just facing these challenges. How do we overcome? How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. Not just our own efforts. By the blood of the Lamb. We still stay founded on the gospel. And whenever you wonder whether you can be truly free of your past, don't be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is the gospel that you heard. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the gospel that we believe and have placed all our hope on. And in these foundational days for Mercy Hill as a congregation, I want to challenge you not only individually, but as a congregation to dig your foundation deeply onto the bedrock of the gospel, that the person and work of Jesus Christ is our all and all. Make this your secure foundation, not just individually, not just for your family, but for this family, this congregation of Mercy Hill. Keep on talking about the gospel. Never take it for granted that everyone knows the hope of the gospel. Be a place that when people are asked about Mercy Hill, what they say is, man, those people just can't stop talking about Jesus. 
Man, it seems like whenever I'm talking to one of those Mercy Hill people, it's, they're just talking about Jesus all the time. Have your hope founded on the gospel. And the other thing that Paul says in verse 23 is to hold out that hope to others. Hang on to the hope, hold on to the hope, but hold out the hope of the gospel to others. Look at that last sentence. Paul says, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul has a progression going in these verses where he starts with these things of cosmic importance and significance. The glory of Jesus before creation, in creation, through creation, focusing and funneling through the cross and exploding out the other side for the reconciliation of the world. He turns the focus then on the church at Colossae, on believers themselves, saying, and you have received this. Now Paul says, I, Paul, have become a servant of this gospel. Friends, if this gospel is real, not only out there somewhere, but in here, it does something for our identity. And Paul says at this point, he suddenly inserts himself personally into this work, the redemptive work of God, reconciling all things. He says, of this gospel, says, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He, he emphasizes that with the biggest highlighter. The, you know, I don't know if they, they didn't have highlighters you know, when he was writing this. But that's what he's doing. He could have said, and of which I have become a servant. And we'd keep on going and get to the next verse. And there we are. And we might not realize that this is everything to Paul in who he sees himself as being. So he emphasizes it. He says, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's his self-identification. Paul frequently refers to himself as a slave of Christ. Doulos is the Greek word that he uses. Some letters he introduces himself that way. I'm Paul, I'm a slave of Christ. He emphasizes God's absolute ownership of his life because Jesus has truly bought his obedience. Here at the end of verse 23, he uses the Greek word diakonos, translated servant in the New International Version, minister in a lot of other English translations. Paul sees himself as a slave of Christ belonging body and soul to Jesus as a servant of the gospel. He says, of this gospel, I myself have become a servant. That needs to be our personal identification. This glorious gospel of which I, Paul, have become a servant, of which I, John, have become a servant, of which I, Ryan have become a servant, of which I, Ellen, have become a servant, of which I, Fabio, have become a servant. Can you put your name there? Have you become a servant of this glorious gospel? Because Jesus Christ owns you, body and soul. His ownership comes with a commission. This word diakonos, diakonos, it's a word they use for table waiters. You know, go to a restaurant. The person who brings the meal out to you is a table waiter. That's what Paul's saying here. He says that in his apostleship, in his service to Christ, he says, of which I, Paul, have become the table waiter. I'm bringing something. 
And I didn't cook it up myself. It didn't start with me or come with me. But I've got a special delivery. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are table waiters of the gospel of God, bringing the message of hope in Jesus Christ to a hungry world. Now, what would you think of the waiter saying, coming out of the kitchen back here? Wow, that's good. Mmm, I love that smell. This is so good. And instead of taking it over to table number eight, where they over it, ordered it, the waiter sits on down, just gobbles it up myself. Oh, this is just the best. This is so good. Oh, that's great. I'm going to go back for some more because I just love this stuff. What's the mission of the waiter? It's to bring and present to someone else. It's for someone else. Not to stop with us, but it's for someone else. Of this gospel, Paul says, I have become a servant. Friends, that's why Mercy Hill is here. It wasn't just to make church a little more convenient if you live closer to Highland than to Lansing. It's because God has something for you to deliver. It's hope for a hungry world. Put your name here. And of which I, myself, have become a servant. Amen.